Good morning, family. How you doing today? Good. My name is David. I am the site pastor at Grace Covenant Sterling. It's nice to meet you again after my interruption during the Greet One Another. Uh, before we get started today, uh, we've got an exciting announcement for Grace Covenant as a whole. Uh, today in our Chantilly location, they're announcing that uh, starting on December 13th, they will begin meeting in the new sanctuary. So this is exciting. Now, the work isn't done. There's still giving that needs to happen, and we're participating with them in this giving. They st- we're still trying to raise uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and so we will be receiving our normal offering at the end of this month as scheduled. Uh, and we're going to continue to believe, and we're going to continue to to fight in faith and pray and, exp- and, and, and ask God to multiply our little and make it much so that they can get in. But beginning Sunday, December 13th, they'll be meeting in the, in the new sanctuary. So this is huge. It's really exciting. Um, I'm trying to come up with a way for us to get over there together as a family and have a moment. And so just stay tuned for that. I'll let you know. I mean, if you want to sneak over there for a service, totally understand. Uh, but we want to do so- I'd love to do something with all of us together. And so we'll, we'll announce that as we, get, as we get closer to that. Uh, in case you're wondering, we're going to continue to meet here at Dominion High School uh, when the sanctuary opens. I don't know why, but there seems to be some confusion about whether or not we're here as, uh, as just a temporary holding place until that sanctuary opens, but that's not the case at all. We're here to reach the Route 7 corridor. Uh, the mission or the vision of Grace Covenant Church is to win the city. And that's kind of a big, ominous thing for many of us. And so what we do here in Sterling is we understand that our role in winning the city is to win the Route 7 corridor. So we, I feel responsible for, in terms of evangelism and outreach and care, for Tyson's Corner through to like Round Hill. Right? Come on! So glad I included it. I almost said Leesburg. <laughs> you would have stopped short. But, uh, but I hope that you feel responsible with me for our community, and I hope that you feel responsible with me for the areas north of Chantilly. Um, but we will continue to, to gather together here, and our hope is that we continue to, that, that really we, we start to reach the community in, in a meaningful and impactful way. And so it's also an invitation for you to join us in a, in a more concerted effort if you haven't yet. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 32, and we're continuing in our series on worship. Psalm 32 was written by David, or King David, as we know him. He was a psalmist. He was a king. He was a warrior. Uh, He he was a remarkable man. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that even the most remarkable people didn't get, we don't look at them through rose-colored glasses, but it gives a very honest assessment of their life. So even David, who we know is a man after God's own heart, the Bible lets us into the struggles that David had. The Bible lets us see uh, his darkest moments. And then even the moments that we don't see, David confesses for us in some of his Psalms. And so he just lets us know, like, hey, just in case you didn't know, (laughs) I've been in a dark place and things have been tough and my enemies have been coming at me from every direction. And you see him crying out to God and through his prayer life, we get to learn what his life was a little bit like. And so I love that the Bible doesn't whitewash the, the people's lives for us because otherwise we could be confused into thinking that being a Christian or being a person of faith means being perfect. 
or that it means never messing up or never faltering or never needing to ask for forgiveness or never needing to, to repent or never needing to turn from our sinfulness or never actually stumbling once we're going well. Right? You know that once you give your life to Christ, it doesn't mean that you're never going to mess up again. I wish it did. That'd be awesome. But I know that's not my testimony. That's not my record. I do know that God is merciful and gracious and, and through a process called sanctification, he makes us more holy. And my behavior isn't what it once was and my behavior is coming in line with the new spiritual life that God has given me. And it's my prayer, it's my hope that he's doing the same for you. So Psalm 32, what I'm gonna do today is actually, I'm gonna read the entire Psalm. It's only 11 verses, but um, we're gonna focus on, on the last couple of verses, but uh, I do want to hit this, verses 1 and 2. And you know what? We'll just do the whole thing. We'll just talk about the whole psalm, right? But Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the, the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, where it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the revelation that's nested in this, and we thank you for the instruction that is in it. I ask that you would be glorified in our hearts and minds today. And God, that you would even convict us where we need conviction. You would inspire us where we need inspiration. You would train us where we need training. You would correct us where we need correcting, all according to your good purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't read the word Selah. If, if, if it was up on the screen behind me, I'm not sure. But the word Selah is in the Psalms. It means pause. Okay, so you could say Selah, but, or you could just pause. Okay, so I just paused. Um, I wasn't forgetting the Bible, right? They're like, he skipped words. Probably means something bad. <laughs> Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. I think a lot of times I think about the wrong things. Because my sins have been forgiven, but happiness is so elusive. What is it that makes traffic so much bigger than me to the salvation that my God has offered me? 
What is it that's made my terrific two-year-old? <laughs> right? Jermaine's not in here. Bigger than the joy that comes from knowing that God has forgiven me. What is it that makes the electric bill being a little bit higher than it normally is bigger than the joy that comes from knowing that God has forgiven me? Happy or blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Why do I struggle so mightily to find joy in the salvation of God instead of the frustration with the life, that, you know, the, 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 the difficulty that's in front of me? It's because I think about the wrong things. I mean, think about the things that you've thought of this week that frustrated you real quick. Not too long. We don't want to go down that path. Just what is that thing that got you this week? It just irked you. And even I'm like, just me bringing it up, your blood pressure's going up a little bit. And you're like, this guy is the worst pastor ever. He's not helping me. Now think of it in comparison with eternity and the presence of God that is made accessible to us because our sins have been forgiven. Have you ever had like a debt canceled? Like a debt canceled? What was it like? Have you ever had a debt canceled? Have you ever had somebody say, hey, or gotten out of, a, out of a speeding ticket? I never have. I normally get extra credit. <laughs> I'm a super speeder in the state of Georgia. It didn't come with a high five. Have you ever had something forgiven? Have you ever had something in front of you that it was, you felt the weight of it and there was no way that you were going to settle this debt? There was no way that you were going to be able to overcome the obstacle and then the obstacle was gone? You and I have a debt that's greater than our ability to pay. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died our death on our behalf so that all we have to know is life. It's amazing to me. There are a few words for sin that the psalmist uses in just these first two verses. We see the word sin, that means sin. We see the word transgression, transgression, which is a type of sin. It's kind of a category of sin. You know, there are a lot of different words that describe the same kind of problem. But the word transgression is a sin of commission or omission. It could also be understood to be a breach of trust. There's been a breach of trust between us and God, either by things that we have done or things that we have not done that he has called us to do. And the person whose sins are forgiven, even their transgression is forgiven also. And he also uses the word iniquity. The word iniquity speaks to the condition of our hearts that's not equal to God. It's just our state of guilt. It's from this place of iniquity that the rest of our transgressions come from. Because of iniquity, I sin. You with me? No? You getting over the fact that I sin? You're like, pastor's a sinner. Are you, did you, do you understand that? Is it too dark in the room? Snapping. <laughs> iniquity is kind of the operating system that runs the program of iniquity. Okay? And God forgives it all. He stands ready to redeem or forgive all of those who are willing to admit their guilt. Sin is sneaky. We can be aware of our sin, know that it's there, be facing it, 
but not experience forgiveness for it. I, I mentioned the God test last week. The God test is, is a neat conversation starter that can be used with friends or family or, or it can be used with uh, complete strangers. If, if you want to go to the mall and have some neat conversations, it's, it, the first question is, do you believe in God? If the person says yes, there's nine more questions about their belief in God. If the person says no, it's nine more questions about their not belief in God. How they got to that place. Do they find any ultimate meaning or purpose in the universe? Does human life have any significant standing that's greater than plant or animal life? Questions like that that are great for somebody who's an atheist and wants to battle the questions of existence and uh, life and purpose. But one of the questions on the God test, if you believe in God, if you already believe in God, one of the questions is, does God have expectations of us? And most people say, yes, absolutely. And they'll describe what those expectations are according to their understanding of it or just making it up on the spot, right? And oftentimes you can tell who's been churched and who hasn't, but you can also tell who's trying, who knows that there's a lot there and is trying to make it as small as possible. And we try and lower God's expectations. And so the lowest common denominator is often God wants me to be a good person. He wants us all to be good people. And I, you, the, the whole point of the God test is just to have a conversation and figure out what people believe and have an opportunity to pray with them or to share your own faith if the opportunity allows for it um, and, and hopefully lead somebody to Christ. But uh, oftentimes at this moment, you're not going to challenge them and be like, you're wrong, the Bible says. No, you're just listening <laughs> about what they believe God's expectations are. And the next question is, how well do you meet those expectations on a scale of one to 10? One being you're doing a terrible job 10 being that you meet this expectation perfectly. I have never met anyone who answers 10. So even when we lower the expectations that God has for us, we still fall short of the standard that we've lowered to. You with me? We don't actually lower the standard by saying it's lower, but we don't even meet the lower standard that we've created. Most people at their very best, they're like seven or eight, to which you say, what if... What if Mother Teresa considered her life to be very, very low on this chart? And it's like, how low? About a three. And they're like, uh, maybe a 2.75. <laughs> Every person who I do the God test with is aware of the problem of their sin. They don't know how to talk about it, but they know that there's an expectation on their life that they fall short of meeting. Every major world religion and every society feels this problem of sin. So we create rules and regulations and laws to try and keep this sin in check so at least our sin can be pleasant to one another or at least as, un, uh, as least unpleasant as possible. And so we've got this problem of sin that's, that's universal and everybody feels it. So feeling the problem of sin doesn't actually solve the problem of sin, does it? And creating rules or lowering standards to deal with our problem of sin doesn't solve it. Because even when we lower the standard, we can't meet the lower standard. Whatever system we create, we're inconsistent within that system. And so we can't fix it. It's also possible to confess your sins without repenting of them. You can be well aware of your sin, talk about your sin, call your sin sin, but never enter a place of forgiveness. And until we enter into that place of forgiveness, we're not entering into the blessing that God intends for us to walk in. Uh, um, last Sunday, I encouraged uh, the congregation. I said, hey, let's all be healthier 
a year from today than we are right now. Right? And then Thursday night, my small group had a nacho night. (laughs) Not just like ordinary nachos. We had breakfast nachos where you cook eggs and bacon and sausage and veggies and everything and you launch it on the, on the chips and then you put obscene amounts of cheese on it and you melt it and it's delicioso. <laughs> to quote the Dora. <laughs> we also, just for the sake of confession... I also introduced them to mac and cheese nachos. Which to anybody who loves cheese just a little bit already understands that it's amazing. It'll change your life. It's kind of what salvation feels like, but in your mouth. It's delicioso. Dose. It's amazing. It was gluttonous. And I'm confessing it, but I'm not repentant. (laughs) You can confess something without entering into a realm of forgiveness. There's no forgiveness for me if I'm proud of what I did. There's no forgiveness for me if I even feel guilty about what I did, but there's no contrition. The work of, of, of Jesus is not that you are aware of your sin. It's not just that you're aware of your sin. It's not just that you talked about your sin. But it's also not just that you, you talked about your sin, you're aware of your sin, and you feel bad about your sin. The work of God is not complete just that you feel bad about your sin or your sinfulness. And I think sometimes this is where we, this is where we fall short in, in, our, in our Christianity because we feel like, oh, I'm a Christian. I should feel really bad about something. And maybe that maybe maybe in certain areas or, or certain areas of the world or certain uh, environments, it's like you know we've got to be weighed down by our sinfulness and feel re- like deeply remorseful all the time. And we should certainly feel deeply remorseful. We should certainly feel convicted. The Holy Spirit is here to convict us of sin and to convict us of righteousness. But it doesn't just stop with the conviction. But it's supposed to be a conviction that leads to repentance. That opens the door for God to bring forgiveness. We become aware by the Holy Spirit of our sinfulness. We feel conviction by the Holy Spirit of our sinfulness. And when we become aware of it, we confess with contrition and humility, God, I am a sinful person. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Will you please forgive me? And God is faithful to do so. And when he's done so, he wipes the the slate clean. He doesn't just keep us in, in neutral. He's not like, hey, I've forgiven your sin. Congratulations. He says, no, no, not only am I not counting your iniquity against you, but I'm going to count you as righteousness, as righteous. I'm going to count you to be pure. I'm going to count you to be holy because you've surrendered your life to me, because you've humbled yourself, because you've, you've come to a place of contrition and you've repented. The work of God is is to to identify our sin, not for the sake of making us feel terrible and just stay terrible, but so that we can turn from that and recognize that we've done something that falls short of the the standard and the life that he intends for us. It 
God in his mercy made David's sin unbearable to him. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Have you ever had uh, so much anxiety that you felt your body breaking down? Have you ever felt so guilty that you felt your whole body breaking down? You know that feeling when you get called to the principal's office? Some of y'all don't. That's okay. I, I got a friend. And you're like, your name gets called. Oh no. Which thing was it? <laughs> or maybe you know which thing. Or the worst, my, my, my parents had an arrangement. If I was really out of control, my mom spanked me and that didn't work. You get on the phone with dad. And dad, all dad said while on the phone was like, I'll see you when I get home. My soul wasted away. <laughs> my bones wasted away. <laughs> Tell me what I can do. What do I have to do to make it right? You know that, that anxiety and that pain and that fear and that insecurity. That's the mercy of God to let David feel this way so that he could know that there was a problem. That there was a debt greater than he could bear. But as terrible as the weight of sin was, the freedom of sin, or the freedom from that sin, is even greater. He's been released of this debt that caused his bones to waste away, and now that he's been washed clean, he's been covered, he's been called righteous, he's been called holy, he's been called pure, he, he enters into this place of freedom and liberty and joy and happiness and blessing of God. I think some of us are nervous about the, you know, being blessed by God because you think that because it's been tied to like name it and claim it and like the blessing of God is a Maserati in a four car garage, right? No, the, no, the blessing of God is his presence. It, the blessing of God is himself. The blessing of God is his joy. The blessing of God is his presence. The blessing of God is something that he desires for us. Certainly there's material blessing that can come, but it doesn't necessarily have to come. In this life. I get excited about the presence of God in my life. And I get upset about the things in my life that keep me from that. I get upset about the arguments that I have with my wife. Or when I snap at my kids. Or when I see something that I shouldn't have seen. Or when, I, when I'm feeling just depressed, right? And I, I, this is tricky territory. But I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if some if not a lot of the anxiety and depression we feel as a society, is just our bones wasting away because we are so inundated or we feel so strongly the weight of our sin, but we don't know what to call it. I, I know there, I, I know some of us, we need, a, get, take an antidepressant if you need it. Don't just get off your antidepressant, but let it get you to a place where you can experience the presence of God. And continue to look for him for deliverance. You know, he can, he can work in your blood chemistry too. I'm not, I'm not, there's no shame. Okay? If you've got to take an antidepressant, take your antidepressant. If you've got to take a medicine, take your medicine. Okay? Do you hear that? But I think at large, there's no way that, what, 75% of our society is actually clinically depressed. I just don't, I can't buy that. I have to believe that there's something of, of our society that's experiencing what David described as the wasting away of his bones. That we feel, and it's just the mercy of God saying, hey, turn to me, something's not right. The indicator light is on on your dashboard. 
There's a problem. Pull over. Call the mechanic. Take it in. He cries out to God. He puts it all out there. He talks about that. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't even cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then, and then, so he confesses this and it's for this reason that God's forgiveness came. It's for, that David says this, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's not just, the presence of God is and should be a place where we go to experience freedom and safety and joy and hope. Where we hear the promises of God, where we experience the joy of God. But it's just like the enemy and just like our flesh that when we've sinned, that's the last place we want to go. Isn't it? Man, I've fallen short. I better not go to church. Oh, I saw this thing online, or man, I got drunk, or man, I did this, or man, I did that, or, or you know, if not you, your neighbors. There, there's a reason people don't come to church. We're afraid that God's going to come smack us all down, right? Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes I'm like, man, I got to read my Bible, but I didn't, I, I screwed up today, so will God accept me? And then, you know, you're sitting here and you're like, God, I see, you, you see your Bible on the desk, or maybe you don't see your Bible on the desk, but... I see it on the desk and I'm like, I should really read it. I should really sit down. But there's this doubt that, that God's actually going to meet with me if I sit down and, and read the Bible. And if me being a pastor feels this way, I can only imagine that you sometimes feel the same way. That the definition of that feeling is called shame. And the word shame means it's a fear of separation. It's a fear. I've got this shame. And I'm afraid that if I step up and I read this, that God's not going to speak to me. He's not going to accept me. He's not going to forgive me. But that's not the promise of the gospel. The promise that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. The promise that Christ rose from the dead so that we could be, enter into life with him. So that we could be with him forever. Amen. It's like the ultimate down payment on the promise. Himself. Not reading the Bible, not approaching God, not confessing your sin because you're afraid that God's going to slap you down is like not going to the doctor because you're afraid he's going to tell you you're sick. I've done that too. Right? You're sick and you're like, somebody's like, you should go to the doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor. They're going to tell me something's wrong with me. Well, your insides are coming out. You should probably go and figure out what's wrong with you. Right? Well, they're just going to tell me what's wrong and try and give me medicine. You mean they're going to tell you to stop eating so much food, so many nachos. <laughs> it's any wonder that I was sick, right? You're afraid they're going to tell you that what you're doing was wrong and they're going to give you a solution so that you can get better. That'd be pretty tragic. So it should be. So it is with God. We're afraid to approach him because we're afraid that if we approach him, he's going to reveal our sinfulness. The great news that if he reveals our sinfulness, he's provided the solution for us in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he cha the, the psalmist changes directions and he starts speaking in the first person. Now, if you look at commentaries, some people think that God was speaking this. Some people think that David was speaking this. I'm falling into line with that David is speaking this. But the great news is God uses people to speak through. 
So I kind of like after spending too many hours reading about which one it was, I was like, oh, maybe it's God speaking through David. Like the whole rest of the psalm. <laughs> right? Like somehow I'm going to hold it in one regard if it's David and one regard if it's God. It's his words. It's his exhortation, but he says, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And we can respond in one of two ways to this instruction. And we always have a choice. You have a choice today how you'll respond to this message. You have a choice tonight how you'll respond to the instruction of God. You have a choice tomorrow how you'll respond to the conviction that you feel from the Holy Spirit. You can see it. You can acknowledge it. You can yield to it. You can turn. You can repent and ask for God's forgiveness. Or you can become stiff-necked and reject it. And he's aware of this situation. (laughs) The psalmist is. And he says, hey, I'm going to instruct you. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Don't resist this because horses and mules, we got to put things in their mouth and put things around their neck and yank them to where they're supposed to go because they'll avoid you. He says, don't be that way. The opposite is to be someone who has a sensitive heart to the things of God, who's willing to receive correction by the Holy Spirit from his word, from the Holy Spirit himself and from his people. Have you ever been told something you didn't want to know from somebody in this church? It's coming. If I haven't done it yet, this message, it's coming. And somebody's going to do it with love, or sometimes it happens on accident. Not just this church, but it's going to happen in the workplace. You'll get rebuked by a non-Christian on accident. I had a non-Christian rebuke my evangelism style. Because I got this smug look on my face because I knew I was right. He's like, why do you always get that smug look on your face when you're talking to people about your faith? Whew. Got two choices. Forget you. (laughs) You're stupid. (laughs) You're not a Christian. You don't know how to do evangelism. (laughs) I do it the right way. (laughs) All arrogantly. Or respond and say, man, God, thank you for bringing this correction. I get correction from my kids all the time. Daddy, why are you mad? Because you... (laughs) Nope. If you don't believe in original sin, have a kid. (laughs) They'll reveal yours. (laughs) You see what I did there? You were like, yeah, kids are evil. (laughs) Don't be like the horse or mule that feels the pulling and the pushing and the instruction, but without understanding, we can understand God's given us reason and logic. He's given us hearts to understand. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Courage and energy and strength to respond. As you feel the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and, and, and drawing you to himself and saying, hey, as you get closer, you're going to see that you're not quite right. Turn from this. As you get closer to me, you're going to see that's not quite right. Turn from this. And as we turn from it, and we turn to God, and we ask for his forgiveness, he forgives us. You can see in verse 10 why he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
Because we all feel, as I said earlier, this sense of our iniquity. We're all aware at some level of our sinfulness and and about how we are not lined up with the purpose and the will of God for our life. We feel that. So it would be sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow with no hope for anything but sorrow. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Trusts to what? To forgive our sins. To make us righteous. To protect us, preserve us, and bless us. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is a series on worship. I talked a lot about sin. Well, I like sin. But it's a series on worship. All of this is to lead up to this understanding that God has set us free and we ought to be free indeed. We ought to worship freely and with thanksgiving and with hope and with joy and with expectation of the presence of the living God. Shout, you know, I, I, look, I'm not reserved in my worship because, because I, because I'm so, I know how far I was from God's best. And I also know how far, well, I don't know how far, right? I have an idea of how far I still am from him. All I know is that I've got a lifetime to look forward to of him making me more like him. And all the while, I get to celebrate what he's already done for me. When I worship, I shout. We rejoice. We celebrate, not because we are so good or we are so great or I've made myself to be a certain way, but because God is so good and God has been so merciful and he's been so gentle and he's been so kind to reveal to me my sinfulness and then to wipe it away and to call me righteous. That's enough for me to shout for joy. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to shout, but if you can get excited about your sports team getting into the end zone, Maybe you can get excited about what God is doing for you. What he has done for you. If you can get excited about getting a contract or getting a promotion. If you can shout a little bit when you hang up the phone because it went well or something got, you, somebody got it let off the hook. Then we should get real glad about how God has taken us off the hook. By getting on it for us. And delivering us into life.